Hello, welcome back to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. Where to begin? For a start, we're not in a studio. That's been shut down. But our podcast hasn't been. Instead, we're going to have to get used to meeting virtually, as are so many families, colleagues, friends, as offices close, schools shut, and the government recommends against all unnecessary social contact. Almost every day, the fight against coronavirus is taken to a new level. This really is extraordinary, a word I suspect we might come to overuse, though with some reason. Life as we know it is being reshaped. Just a week ago, the rewriting of daily life, the instructions we're taking from our government on just how to do that would have seemed really unbelievable. But the government has been shutting down the country as if it's pulling one giant imaginary lever after another. A nationwide closure of schools is the latest, the first in British history. At the same time, it's also scrambling to support the many businesses and people who are now facing real financial and personal calamities as a result of the steps that are essential for public health. So what is the government doing to support them? And when we do get through, when coronavirus passes through, as Donald Trump is fond of saying, or I hope it's defeated by scientific ingenuity and government action, will people's expectations of government have been permanently changed? Joining me via laptops and iPhones is the IFG's resident historian, Kath Haddon. Kath, where are you? Uh, I'm at home at the moment, um, obviously facing away from my view out the window, but uh, thus far managing okay to sort of work with you all and uh, uh, quite enjoying this novel experience. Good to hear your voice. And on the podcast for the first time, a big welcome to the IFG senior fellow, Jill Rutter, also a former civil servant. Jill, great to have you here, or sort of here. How have you been? Uh, I'm all right. I'm sitting I'm spending rather too much time on my sofa, I think, at the moment. Um, but I have to say, Microsoft Teams and being able to keep in touch with people through that is the absolute saviour, I think, if you live on your own. And I'm delighted that Matthew Paris, Times columnist, is joining us. Matt, where are you and how are you? Well, little product uh, placing here. I've just come back from the Times for for which I I work, and we've had uh, one of those virtual conferences. The editor wasn't there. A few of us were there actually at the Times. The rest were all phoning in, as it were, and we spent half an hour talking about what we're going to talk about next here. And it was a very strange feeling being in a room with a lot of people in a way, and with only a few people in another way. And, and here I am back at home now in this same weird situation. I, I'm finding it very strange. Yeah, and with the editor adjudicating uh, what's going to happen without actually being there. Yes, yes. Yeah. And everybody having to say, Matthew here, Julian here, or whatever, because we can't see them. No doubt that will all change. Uh, one thing that this virus will probably do is, is teach us how to have really good video conferences. And there, there may even be little humanoids on the desks on which the faces of the people we're talking to will appear. That would make it much easier. (laughs) We have been able to see Boris Johnson on the the television, at least. And let me just uh, ask you, just right at the beginning, how do you rate his handling of this? I've I've never been a fan of of Boris Johnson's, but uh, one has to give credit where it's due. Uh, He's approached this with the right kind of sobriety. Um, The bluster and the bumbling jokes have gone. Uh, He was quite good at the beginning. I, I think in the last week, He's a little bit lost his way because the problem is he's relying entirely on experts. He's always flanked by the chief medical officer and another expert. And and you're you're not getting the impression that Mr. Johnson himself has a clear idea of what the science is saying or what direction the government ought to take. 
but you are getting the impression that he's listening carefully to advice. The advice, however, appears to have changed, and that's put him in a difficult position. Yeah. Well, we might come on to those points, uh, and the, the advisers aren't all agreeing as well, another point we might we might touch on. Let's start then with what the government is doing. Uh, it's been shutting down flank after flank of normal life. Um, and, and let's talk about what it's going to do to help the millions of people affected. The minute that Boris Johnson stood up on Monday and urged people not to go to restaurants and clubs and for over 70s to isolate themselves, it was obvious that the next thing the Prime Minister had to say or the government had to say was about financial support for the millions who might lose their jobs or suffer in other ways. So, Jill, you know, it's been a huge shift in the last week from trying to delay with limited measures to this um, this increasing shutdown. Just uh, give us a feel of what it would have been like in government making that choice. Well, just to start off with, even though I was in government for really quite a long time, I never confronted anything like this sort of total emergency for government that they're all dealing with now. So uh, I think... One of the problems is that they're sort of rushing and playing a huge amount of catch up. So at the same time, they've got to feed in the scientific evidence that will be going into the emergency meetings in COBRA, but trying to do a massive task on the health side and at the same time try to save the economy and in particular to do something that really isn't amenable to the normal measures. I mean, the normal things you would do in a crisis like this would be, oh, let's have a bit of fiscal stimulus. Gordon Brown was saying that this morning. Let's cut VAT. But actually, someone was pointing out earlier this week, you really need demand to fall. All these social isolation measures, we're telling people, you know, change your life, do things very differently, and basically just just sort of avoid all those normal activities that keep the economy going. So I think that's why it's been so difficult to design things. But I think one of the things that's really interesting is that it does seem that some of the other European countries have moved much more quickly to the sort of things people are talking about now. In particular, finding a way of supporting people to stay with their jobs. So uh, I think we saw some proposals this morning from some think tanks about uh, about actually reshaping statutory maternity pay into statutory retention pay. Uh, so I think, you know, the Chancellor keeps on saying, I think the Chancellor has done pretty well so far, but he keeps on saying there's more to come, there's more to come. But people and businesses are sitting there saying, I have no money coming in now. The cafes aren't absolutely deserted. I was just uh, just out in uh, the high street here. Cafes aren't completely deserted, but they're a fraction of the normal people there. And can they keep on paying people's wages? I mean, that's where I think it's really not just devising the schemes, but actually moving into payment very quickly as well. And that's one of the things that government, I think, finds really difficult. It's great to say we have a scheme to do X, but actually making sure X can actually get into the people's hands to stop them saying, actually, I can't pay you anymore. Sorry about that. That's why some of the first measures were all these things to say, just don't pay the government. You know, don't pay business rates. You know, we'll postpone this. That's the easiest thing for government to do is just say, don't write a check to us. Really harder. Yeah. Do you think this is going to work? I mean, we had uh, Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, stand up on, on Tuesday and, and he said, what, whatever it takes, huge sums of, of, of money. Uh, but um, he was trying to, it seems to me, describe the economy almost block by block, saying, well, we'll do something for, you know, uh, these businesses, we'll do something for these ones. And then got a queue of people saying, but that doesn't cover us. You haven't described us. You haven't described the self-employed. You haven't described the renters. Do you think it is, is what he said going to be enough? I think there's a lot of um, a lot of slippage between the announcement and 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 the money actually getting through 
to people. We don't yet know what the conditions are going to be. We don't know who the key, which the key businesses are going to be. We're not entirely clear what the qualifications to receive the money are. And we're not entirely clear whether businesses are, will be duty bound to pass that on to their employees or whether they might just use the government's money to save their businesses, mothball their ba- businesses, keep the money and lay their workers off. So that's I, a I very, the, very good point, which the, the, devil, the government hasn't, hasn't addressed. It said about renters, look, uh, you can't yes. be evicted for three months. It hasn't said anything about workers being laid off. We're a very long way, I think, from knowing quite how this is going to work. And I, I suspect it's not just the government hasn't told us yet. I suspect they're still desperately trying to work it out. Mm. Is, the, is the government rising to this? I don't know how you do rise to this, but I have noticed that the pound sterling has been dropping steadily for quite some time. So it looks as though the rest of the world thinks we're not rising to it as, as well as other countries are. They may be well, wrong. I don't know. They're, they're, they're running to the dollar at the, at the moment. Um, uh, but, uh, you, know, you know, what should we make of what has been said so far? Um, uh, uh, Rishi Sunak saying, look, uh, we're going to put money uh, behind small businesses and so on. Um, it's, it's some help, isn't it? Jill, what do you reckon? Yeah, no, I think it is It is helpful. And if you think that at the time of the budget last uh, Wednesday, a week ago, uh, eight days ago, We all thought his 12 billion package was actually pretty well designed and pretty well targeted. Uh, On Monday, he was announcing 330 billion, uh, if it was Monday, uh, of uh, of loans. I think a lot of people will be saying, actually, a lot of people want grants rather than loans. But if you're sitting there in the Treasury, you've got some businesses that are actually doing really quite well out of this. So if, you know, it's not universal. I mean, I think that's one of the problems is that it's so patchy. And that's, I think, why they've naturally gone for this sort of sectoral approach. Can we knock off sector by sector? But the problem with that is that exactly as you said, Bronwyn, that means that you will, in your wide sweep, there will be people whose specific circumstances you're not addressing. Uh, And that's why I think we're starting to hear this talk Either, you know, things that would have been absolutely unthinkable, even if they'd been in the Labour manifesto, universal basic income. Is this the moment that we switch over and just say, actually, we just have to pay every citizen some money and we'll recoup recoup it whenever we can just to keep people tidied over? Uh, I think there's some quite interesting things. It's very interesting to say, how do you actually make sure that the help you give to landlords is then conditional on them passing that on to the tenants. So to say, we're going to give you help, but only on condition. Yeah, it's really difficult to design all of that. I I think, you know, the government's got to have to accept that there will be in any of these things, one of the things we were talking about after the budget, that, you know, there will be potential for fraud, potential for waste, and you just have to accept that there will be some of those things in that, all the things normally you would be very, very nervously guarding against. And um, just picking up on this point about universal basic income, as you said, it would have been taken as just a, you know, a thought out in way left field. Suddenly we've got Donald Trump uh, or his, his uh, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin say, thinking, mulling over whether to send every American a check or maybe uh, every American uh, who owns uh, less than $65,000 or something, that's still a lot of Americans. It's suddenly government's flirting with this kind of thing of how to get the cash out there. Matt, do you, 
how, how, how does the politics of this work? We, we're beyond I, talking about left or right or anything, aren't we? I, I really don't know, but because there will be such wild variations in the outgoings of, of different households and in the sum of money that different households think they need to keep themselves, uh, keep their heads above, above water between the liabilities of different households. I'm not sure that a universal basic income of what, you know, £200 a week or something like that, uh, that would stop uh, the those at the very bottom of the economic heap from starving, as it were. But I, I, I think there are an awful lot of problems that it wouldn't solve. But there are going to be a lot of people, I mean, to say that the, the, the bottom of the economic heap makes them sound as if they've always been struggling, but there could be a lot of people really doing very well recently who've suddenly seen um, every contract they had uh, just vanish uh, in the basis in the space of a couple of weeks, and all they've got coming through the front door is, is, is bills. And the argument, I guess, the government doing something is that this is, it ought to be a temporary shock. Um, that we all get through, and that these are people and businesses that uh, ought to be helped through this. Yes, well, it's all very well to say it's, it's temporary, but tell that to your bank manager. <laughs> the, the people have got, got to, to, to get through it and that they're going to have to either borrow or accept extremely harsh changes in the way that they, that they live. I, 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 I don't easily see how the government can approach this except by trying to keep as many businesses afloat as possible and make sure that they carry on paying their employees. But there, there has to be, no one has discussed this as far as I could tell. Is there any limit to the amount that the, the government can spend? It, it After the budget, it was about 30 billion. It's now 350 billion. Could, could, could we make it 850 billion or or, or a trillion. What What is the limit to what the government can do, to how much they can borrow? Well, at some point it becomes the uh, you know, ability to finance that and the ability to pay it back in the end. Yes, to, to yes. Some well, where is that it. point? But actually just yeah. letting the economy completely crash and not providing support. I mean, the government will pick up an awful lot of the bill for that if that happens as well. You know, if you move everybody onto... Uh, uh, universal credit or whatever, you know, because they've lost their jobs, that's not a great place to be either. So it's much better if you can find some way of safety netting. You could also be thinking about, you know, actually there are some people, people who whose incomes are ticking over, who are not spending very much money. At, uh, very, very interesting down the line to see if there's, you know, any consensus emerging about, well, actually some of the people really can afford to pay some of that back. And we go back to where we were after the financial crisis when we temporarily had a much higher rate of income tax. So I think it's quite interesting because at the moment, you know, there's a real divide between people with jobs that are going on paying them and can move at home, people who's on very precarious employment that we know about now, the sort of gig economy people, and then the people whose jobs are going because they work in areas which are being extraordinarily badly affected. So we're seeing very differential effects. And I think it's really hard to design stuff, how to cope with that. But that's what the Rishi Sunak and his advisors are trying to do right now. The way in which this differs from something like the financial crash, there you're trying to either restore things back to how they were or at least move to a sort of new settlement. But you're focusing on it on almost one dimension, uh, the economy, the international economy, you know, the, the UK economy. Here, you're, you're thinking about all of that stuff, but you're also thinking about the health consequences. You're thinking about... 
you know, the overarching aim, which is to get this social distancing to happen, to stop people interacting with each other. Uh, you're trying to save lives. So it's, it's, it's trying to do it on all those different fronts and thinking about the sort of consequences. Um, and that's been one of the sort of extraordinary things in the last few weeks of watching the government have to think about uh, how these consequences are playing out in the real world. I mean, they planned for this stuff. You know, pandemic flu has been something for, uh, you know, many years that the government has planned for in terms of a civil emergency and a civil emergency that could be of a sort of massive scale. But is, it, is say, it going to plan then? Is, is, well, is no, the that's the thing, because that what they're discovering is that they need you know, there's so many more knock-on effects that actually until you get into it, you don't realise. Um, some of that is about how the economy has changed in the last few years. You know, a, a lot of the strategy for this kind of event was uh, written about 10 years ago. You know, they update all of that. But even so, it's seeing all those knock-on effects. Uh, and they worked out a system for how to then coordinate thinking about knock-on effects. But what they haven't done is actually followed all those little trains through to what, okay, but what does this mean for this? What does this mean for this? Think, and that's what they're finding out now in real time. I think, Kath, that's a really interesting thing about the difference between this and pandemic flu, because there's certain features of coronavirus that are different. I mean, it's much more infectious. That's one of the problems, I think, with dealing with this, that it's, uh, you know, they reckon that for flu, every one person passes on to you know, 1.3 people, a sort of slightly odd concept, but uh, but whereas, you know, for this, it's, you know, everybody passes on to, you know, two, three, four people, and that makes it spreading much more quickly. So I think that's one of the sort of interesting things. The other thing that seems to have caught them out very much, and we were all looking earlier in the week at that Imperial paper, is how this many This is Imperial people, College, the, the, the Science University. The Imperial University. College paper, yeah. The Imperial College paper, the modelling, which suggested that one of the things that had gone sort of wrong with the assumptions that the government was making was how many people would need intensive care treatment who went into hospital with this and that they were working off the parameters for flu, which meant that not that many people went into ICUs relatively. But with uh, with this, the information from Italy was suggesting there's a much higher, higher conversion rate, if you like, from being hospitalised into needing ICU right, then, then you've got you've got other scientists disagreeing with that very strongly and saying look that that might be too much I, I want to actually jump back to the point that Matt was making right at the beginning about how the government is using advice in this and and how the government should use advice because scientists I mean like you know experts in a way should disagree with each other they should be clashing uh, and and uh, testing the different ideas against each other but how is a government supposed to make uh, a strategy out of these these voices shouting in either ear I mean, the thing you've got to remember with all of it, you know, the government has its, uh, the people that it has chosen to sit as, uh, you know, chief medical officer, the chief scientific advisor, the people advising it on stage. There's many, many groups that then feed into all of that. And they obviously uh, talk to people like the Imperial College. But the thing about this is it's always you have to make a decision on the basis of the best information you've got at that time. And in the end, it comes down to political judgment. And that's what the government has done this week is make a political judgment on what the information they've now got. Um, and yes, we're going to endlessly go back over should they have, you know, instituted more stricter measures earlier, uh, is the science right and so forth. But that's that's one of the real big challenges for ministers in these ki in crises of any kind 
is you can only go on the information that you've got and the channels that are feeding you information. And yes, you want to get as much of that as possible, but you also don't want to be drowned so much in the noise of lots of different things that you don't do anything. Can I, can I just ask Matt about the, the point I'm, what he was making at the beginning, uh, Matt, when you were saying it, it is the prime minister with uh, advisors, with experts, um, you know, on, on either shoulder. Do you think, um, do you find that persuasive? I don't. No, uh, I, I, I am reassured that the prime minister is listening to the experts. Everybody would be reassured, but you actually want something a bit more in a prime minister. You want to feel that having listened to the experts, the Prime Minister will then take his or her own judgment, make his or her own judgment on, on what the experts have said. And uh, it, it may just be that I'm a bit of a Boris sceptic, but uh, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure that I'm reassured on that last point. Nor, I think, is it just a matter of getting the information and listening to the science. Political judgments have to be made. And I, I half suspect that... The U-turn that the government have made this week may arise partly from new information, but it may arise partly from the horror at the idea of ambulances queuing out of outside hospitals with very ill people in them and not being mm. able to get into and also intensive Britain, care. Care, Britain I mean, politically doing worse than other countries. That. Yes, yes, yeah. No, I, I think yeah, I completely so, agree. I mean, what I was going to say was that it, they're also dealing with what are the sort of different worst cases that they've got to deal with. And in the end, uh, yes, it comes down to a political judgment, uh, a moral judgment even, about do you have to do the things that actually seem to deal with the worst possibilities of what's going on at the moment? And I agree, in the end, that comes down to, you know, personal political capability to make those decisions. It's not just one that's driven purely on an information basis only, and I agree with that. There's so a bit moral, it, oh, sorry, Matt, to, there's a, a big moral judgment that governments all around the world appear to have made, and that is that they should sacrifice the 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 prospects and 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 the economic prospects and the well-being of the younger generation in order to keep the oldest and most vulnerable um, uh, out of, away from death's door. That that that's a huge moral judgment that we've made, and I I've yet to be persuaded that it's the right one. How do we think they're going to be judged in the end on this? On on what? On lives lost? On the economy? I think there's going to be quite a lot looking at uh, at how have we done compared to other countries, and I think that's the sort of area of vulnerability. This is yes a big uh, a big change. It's a big challenge to every government. I got the sense last week. I don't know whether whether Matt and Kat did as well. That there was a bit of a sense that uh, a British exceptionalism that we were doing this differently. We were being guided by science. We were being much more rational than other countries, and we were looking sort of at Italy and Spain and saying, "Well, that's slightly what you'd expect." They're panicking, etc. I I think it's going to be very interesting, and I think you know this may end up being played back through people's pre-existing starting positions of are they sceptical about the government. Do they think that actually you know, we did take a different path initially because we were focused elsewhere? Our bandwidth was taxed by trying to do too many other things. We've got you know, Brexit, we've got the COP and stuff like that, all of that going on. Was our government not paying attention? And did we actually suffer from not being part of some of the European systems, you know, the 
all this stuff about our ministers not participating in the calls between European ministers or the not being part of the European early warning system and that argument going on. So I think it's going to be actually the question will be, did the did Britain come through better, more robustly than others, or did we appear to do a lot worse? I think the real danger for the government is if we appear to have done a lot worse, either on the health outcomes or on the economic outcomes. I want to take a step back now as much as is possible during this crisis and looking at how when we get to the other side, this might change people's expectations of government. Matt, like no time in recent memory, the government is telling, ordering people to change the way they live and they might expect more of government and accept that kind of direction, at least at first. But do you think it will go on? I I think there's a little bit of drag at the moment and there are still people going to pubs and, and, and restaurants and not everything has been cancelled. And there's still a lingering sense that perhaps we've got this out of proportion amongst the general public, I mean, and that uh, we're not going to panic, even if the government is. I think that will pass quite quickly. And uh, on the whole, I think my countrymen and countrywomen are are pretty deferential to to official advice. And I, I don't expect large cultural rebellions from people. People will do what the government say. And I, I don't think you're going to find, for instance, the libertarians in the House of Commons objecting to the idea that the police might actually, if you're on the street, ask you where you're going and where you've come from, that there will be a, 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 a relegation of our ideas of, of, of freedom and personal liberty for as long as this lasts. We're going to see a bill next week brought to Parliament, which will give a lot of new powers to the government. Kath, what's what's in it? Yes, so this is a bill that's being introduced today, but will be pushed through on Monday to bring in some more emergency powers. Uh, The government's already got quite a lot of emergency powers, both in dealing with public health emergencies and also civil contingencies. But they're not exactly the things that the government feels now that it needs to have in place. And that's why it's bringing in... Um, these new powers. The problem with the Civil Contingencies Act is that a lot of that is supposed to be only used when you can't bring in legislation, when you need to use uh, other existing powers to act uh, in a very sudden emergency. Um, In this case, though, again, they already had some for public health emergencies provided by uh, previous legislation. But again, they've discovered that there's a load of knock-on effects that aren't covered and so that's what they're bringing in new sort of new powers to cover i mean even things like forcing you know schools to close but also forcing some of them to stay open because if we've been hearing you know some schools are going to remain open to uh, look after the children of those in sort of specific sectors um but also think to allow the courts to continue functioning, um, you know, to make sure that you can ban events and gathering. And yes, some of it is about how to deal with uh, people uh, being out and about when you're trying to enforce social distancing rather than just encourage it, which is the current the government's current approach. But there's a, there's a lot of details in there, aren't there? Like, I, I, if I'm right, uh, having one doctor, not two, required to sign off mental health um certificates and, and so on. Uh, how long yeah. is this thing going to be in place? 
Well, so this is the really the one thing we're probably looking out for on Monday as to whether there is some pushback on that, because they're, they're planning on bringing in legislation that will be in place uh, potentially for two years. Obviously, it could be ended earlier. Um, but a lot of people are, uh, you know, have been talking about whether or not that should be reduced to one year uh, or to have it as being for a shorter period of time, but with the option to then continue it. Now, I, I mean, you know, there's all sorts of reasons why you just want to have it in place so that you don't have to come back to Parliament um, and why you'd want to have it in primary legislation rather than have to rely on future secondary legislation. Um, but this is probably the one area that um, parliamentarians might push back a bit on on Monday. We, we know Labour wants six months, for, for, for example. I mean, Jill, do you think MPs are even going to scrutinise this or is it such an emergency that they will let it go through as as is, apart from this point where just discussing. They seem to be saying that it's going to go through without a vote. But you do think that these are very sweeping powers the government is taking to itself and for a very long time. And on that basis, you would hope that MPs do at least have a serious look at it. But I think one of the things that's really interesting is that it does appear that the government has been consulting the opposition on what it is putting in its bill. So we may not get that much scrutiny in Parliament on Monday, not least because they're telling MPs to, you know, to ration their appearances in the chamber uh, and demonstrate social distancing in action rather than all cramming in together. But I do think it's really quite interesting that they have been, uh, and I think this is one of the things that's come out of this crisis, is we have seen much better joint working with the opposition, and we've also seen much better working with the devolved administrations as well. And those are some of the areas where things were fraying, I think, in the run-up to this book. People have been forced to actually collaborate in a way that we haven't seen in our politics for quite some time. I wonder if that will stick on the devolved administrations. There was really quite a lot of friction there with uh, the devolved nations saying, look, we're going our own way on, on some of this, for example, over the, uh, over the schools. I think I mean, they're Matt, going a bit you, differently. Yeah, but, yeah, I was going to say, I think the real area of tension there is Northern Ireland, where we're seeing Northern Ireland's uh, unique status in the United Kingdom playing out in real time with Sinn Féin much more keen to follow what the Republic of Ireland is doing and the DUP, the you know, Arlene Foster's first minister, trying to go with the UK approach. And I think you're really seeing absolutely in real time that two-way tug in Northern Ireland. I think for the rest, uh, things like schools and health are devolved, but I think for the rest, so far... The coordination seems to me to be going relatively well, but others may have different views. What about paying for all this? I mean, what about higher taxes? Well, on last week's podcast, we were discussing whether people would come out of this wanting even more from the, the NHS and social care and government in general and being very prepared to pay for it. Do you think we've jumped into a, a new era? Matt, what do, you, what do you reckon? I doubt it. I, I doubt it. Uh, for, for, for a while, perhaps, if the the way that not only our own government, but governments around the world have handled this uh, crisis in retrospect uh, is uh, a matter for admiration. People think it's been really well done. Then I think that does give quite a lot of power to the the idea, the concept of the the, the state as, as the great protector. But if we just stumble through all this, still arguing, and at the end of it are not sure that we did the right thing in the first place, I think the quiescence that you have at the moment about questions like tax and borrowing and the national debt and all that kind of thing, that that will pass and people will begin to worry again uh, about the rate of taxation, 
worry about the state of uh, our borrowing and all the old conservative instincts will come through again amongst conservatives and the old labor instincts will come through amongst labor. I, I don't think we're going to see a, a really big change in the way people think. It's different uh, from the financial crisis, isn't it? Where people felt that all this money was going to rescue banks and uh, some extent bankers. And this is going yes. to the, the kind of common good. It, 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 it might, it, we might be spared the bitterness uh, that came out of that. Yes, I, I, I'm, I'm sure you're right. And I mean, there's also the question of how much it's about restoring the things then that people want. You know, we talked a lot about the gig economy, uh, you know, small businesses, bars, shops, all these kinds of things, and also support for the people who are on the front line of all of this. And, you know, people will be perhaps more sympathetic uh, towards um, policies that are in place that focus on all of those things and restoring uh, people's expectations rather than something that seems quite removed as the financial crash or the, the consequences of banks perhaps did to people. I think it's really interesting that we've spent some time talking about immigration and focusing on, uh, you know, when we look at the government's points-based system, what do you get points for? And now we're actually talking something very differently. One of the things the government's going to have to do in this bill is define key workers, I think, probably. Uh, they're certainly going to have to do that for their instructions for schools. And it'll be very interesting to see how different that set of key workers are from the list of people who would get lots of points under the points-based system. So it might cause some of us to reevaluate who actually matters uh, to keep the economy <laughs> ticking over in time of emergency. I mean, it's delivery drivers, isn't it? They are now key to our economy. Yeah. Um, and shelf um, stackers and things that like change? that. Yeah, absolutely. And will that change? You know, there's been a lot of discussion in the past about, uh, you know, what employment protections were in place for people who, you know, ride around on their bicycles delivering goods. What kind of pay do they get and so forth? And now, uh, you know, they are at the heart of all of this. So to wrap this up, your, your thoughts on whether this will change the country or whether it will be a forgotten epidemic, as people sometimes talk about the 1918 flu. What do you reckon? I mean, I think it will absolutely change um, people's perception. You know, the, this is going to be a sort of generational experience for many people, whether it's the school kids going through it, whether it's, you know, younger adults, uh, the older population. So it will do. I mean, I think Matthew's got a point about the longer term effects on our politics and on our, the nature of government and the state. You know, we don't know. It's far too early to sort of really conceptualise all of that. But as a collective memory thing, it's, yeah, it's going to be huge. If the retrospective judgment is is that uh, governments botched this epidemic, and and it may well be, then I don't think that will do anything for the respect for for big government. If, on the other hand, the retrospective judgment is that uh, we could never have got through this without firm action from uh, from the big state, then that will change perceptions. It all depends whether this works. I mean, it is the irony that we have a sort of, you know, possibly the most libertarian prime minister we've ever had putting in the most draconian state powers that we've seen in two, three generations. We've got a chancellor, sort of, you know, hedge fund chancellor known for his support for free ports, you know, doing more to have state intervention in the economy than John McDonnell could ever have dreamt of. So it is, it is a very weird sort of time. But I think the thing that's bringing home to me is because I've got lots of friends overseas that I just sort of, you know, assumed I could just go and see and borders shutting 
all over the world is perhaps one of the sort of you know things that bring home that just taken for granted that if I want to get on a plane tomorrow I can go somewhere and now I discover I'm cut off from all these people that uh, that I would normally just you know organize to see so it's uh, it's really making you sort of appreciate the things that you just took for granted for quite some time which may mean that people brush back to them when this is lifted, but we'll we'll have to see. And I absolutely take Matt's point about uh, success really shapes the future or lack of success. Well, that's the end of the podcast. My huge thanks to Kath, Jill, especially to Matthew Paris. And none of us knows what happens next. By the time you listen to this, everything might have changed again. In the weeks and months to come, the coronavirus will dominate these podcasts, but the work of government goes on. So just to end on a quick, different note, what else is happening that we should know about? Kath, what's on your mind for next week, even? Uh, it's, it's very hard to think of anything else but that. I mean, the one thing I'd say, it, I'm sorry, it's still coronavirus related, but it's the announcement by the BBC yesterday about uh, changes to its programming, because obviously live programmes, recording soaps, all that kind of stuff is is pretty much out the window. Um, I think it's going to change our relationship with, you know, some of the broadcasting that we looked at. That a lot of people already sort of addicted to box sets and so forth but um it's going to be very interesting actually what people look for in terms of art culture you know things to keep them going through all of this and whether that changes and jill i mean your point about northern ireland is a really important one and uh, and brexit is that still going on i think that there's this sort of hidden hints we've seen one or two articles from uh, political correspondents saying the government's really accepting that this means it has to uh, extend the transition. We've heard today that Michel Barnier has got COVID-19. So really, how feasible is it to stick to what was already a frankly mad timetable to try and get everything done and dusted with the UK taking a view on sufficient progress in the summer? So I think it'd be very interesting whether at some point in a very apolitical way, both sides can agree that actually, if you can't have the negotiators meeting, uh, this week's round was cancelled. Do we just have to, with absolutely no loss of face on either side, do we have to just agree that it's not sensible? Because it's not just, um, it's not just the negotiations. If we went for the sort of no deal Brexit that's quite on the cards with the government stance, businesses should now be training customs agents doing everything to protect those supply chains. And I think that's just not where business is. That's just another thing we don't need. The danger is that that's just seen as another card of, you know, Ramona's saying anything to get out of Brexit. But if you want Brexit to be done well and to work, then I think you have to be looking at the timetable again. Yeah, well, that sounds entirely plausible. It is, of course, a different line from the one the Prime Minister is taking right at the moment. And Matt, anything else at all on your mind? I think this crisis is going to provide lots of excuses uh, to lots of politicians for not doing lots of the things that they were under some pressure to do. Uh, it's a massive reprieve for the BBC. I, I would have thought any any thought of root and branch reform there has gone out of the window now that our, our national state broadcaster is so central to, to the nation's thinking on things. Uh, I, I think if the government seeks an excuse to uh, delay the uh, bringing in the free trade agreement, the, the the real Brexit that hasn't happened, it it has the perfect excuse. There'll be excuses and excuses all the way down the line. 
Well, thank you for those thoughts. And thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. We'll be back and look out too for our new sister podcast, IFG Live, which will be bringing you the debates, discussions and conversations that for now we can no longer hold in our building. You can find it all on iTunes, Acast or wherever you get your podcast and you can stream us on Spotify too. We'll be working hard to provide an informed and entertaining experience to fill in the gaps in all our social lives in the weeks ahead. There's also a lot of new work and not just on coronavirus on our website. So then do check out instituteforgovernment.org.uk for all that. Until then, keep your distance, but not from us at Inside Briefing. See you soon.